Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, August the 4th, 2023. The news, of course, out of Israel is rather troubling from many people's perspective. Uh, uh, Har- Hararet, the Israeli newspaper, writes about a crisis, a coup, a dictatorship in the current, some people believe, ominous civil war or imminent civil war. The best we could do for it, according to the New York Times, is understand it through Israel's contradictions. Um, of course, there's still the issue of the Palestinians, which seems to be secondary at best now in, in currently in Israel. An interesting piece in the nation suggesting that um, Israel is in the process of being annexed by the settlements. In other words, uh, the occupation is coming home. Um, the news then is not particularly encouraging. Uh, so perhaps we might cheer ourselves up with a conversation about the Abraham Accords, which was um, the last peace treaty uh, established under the Trump administration three years ago in September 2020. My guest today, uh, Arie uh, Lightstone, was an advisor, senior advisor to the American ambassador in Israel at the time, David Friedman. Um, And uh, last year he wrote a book, Let My People Know, The Incredible Story of Middle East Peace and What Lies Ahead. Um, And he is joining me from Eastern Pennsylvania. Uh, Aria, congratulations on the book. A little bit of a belated congratulations. Why the title, Let My People Know? Of course, we're all, we're all familiar with the title, Let My People Go. So first of all, good morning. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm a big fan uh, and enjoy listening to your conversations. Uh, so the title, Let My People Know, actually comes from why I wrote the book in the first place. It was in May of 2021 when Ned Price, the spokesperson for the President Biden State Department, uh, was asked, I think, seven or eight different times by Matt Lee, who's a great reporter from the AP, about the agreements that were signed under the Trump administration that we called the Abraham Accords, the signatories to the agreements called the Abraham Accords. And Matt Lee wanted to know what the Biden administration's perspective was on the Abraham Accords. And this two minute and 37 second clip that you can see on YouTube, Ned Price, who's the spokesperson of the United States of America to the world, refused to even say the words Abraham Accords. And to me, this was a little bit of a gut punch because peace, especially peace that the United States promotes, shouldn't be a Republican ideal. It shouldn't be a Democratic ideal. And it certainly shouldn't be caught up in uh, the vagaries of, of petty politics. So I wanted to write a book called Let My People Know. Maybe we should know about the Abraham Accords, which I think are some of the greatest game-changing foreign policy victories for the United States of America, uh, certainly in my lifetime. You talk about it as a peace, uh, a peace treaty or a, a Middle Eastern peace, but uh, the accords are between Israel and some of the Gulf states who certainly have never fought a war. What's the big deal then about the accords in your view? So that's an excellent question. The difference is whether you have peace on a piece of paper or peace in between people. 
And if you divide up the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or the Israeli-Arab conflict, and it's important to decide which one you're going to call it, since 1967, when Israel was victorious in what's known as the Six-Day War, uh, they conquered Judea and Samaria, the Golan Heights, the Sinai Desert, etc., reunified Jerusalem. Uh, there was a feeling amongst all of the Arab nations that as long as they boycott Israel, as long as there's the three no's of Khartoum, uh, no recognition, no negotiation, no peace with Israel, that that's the superpower that the Palestinians have to be able to force their hand to get what they want at the negotiating table. And if you look at the United States of America, really from 1948, the inception of Israel, but certainly from 1967, there was a, we love Israel, we share values with Israel, it's democracy, there's a lot of reciprocal benefits for the United States of America, but we can't support them too much. Because if we do, it's going to jeopardize our relationship with very important Arab states, especially the Gulf states. And what the Abraham Accords have done and will continue to do is to say that's not the Middle East that we know it as. There was a Middle East up until 2020, and there's a Middle East from 2020. And the Middle East from 2020 is the unification of countries that want to look forward. And the uh, Middle East prior to 2020 are the countries that want to litigate uh, issues of the past. And that's really what the breakthrough of the Abraham Accords were. If you ask any, certainly pundit, but if you ask any of the countries that have not yet made peace with Israel, the lexicon has changed. It's not if they will make peace. Now the question is, when will they make peace? And that's a game changer, certainly for the United States, but also for our allies in the region. Uh, I mentioned the nation piece about uh, Israel being annexed by the settlements, a uh, certain part of Israel, of course, not all Israelis, I guess, would agree with that. In an odd way, in terms of the, the Abraham Accords that you were part of, is Israel, especially in its lurch, it seems to the right, perhaps even towards judicial authoritarianism, do you think it's becoming more and more like the Gulf states, like UAE, like Bahrain, perhaps even like Saudi Arabia? It seems as if it's increasingly becoming uh, a more, shall we say, normalized Middle Eastern state. Well, yes, but I don't think for the reasons that you're stating, I don't think Israel's move to the right uh, has anything to do with whether it's more similar to Bahrain, UAE and Saudi, which, by the way, are countries that I would call moving to the center uh, in terms of uh, religious observance and connectivity. What separates Israel from any of the countries in the Gulf is the robust democracy that they have. Uh, and for example, the, the press, Haaretz, and other press in Israel can write whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want to. And you know what? People can buy the paper and they can go out into the streets and they can protest and they can go home that night without fear of being on a list or being invited to leave the country or whatever it will be. And there well, will be in, in the Saudi case being executed, we, we did a show on S Saudi rates of execution, which are as high almost as Iran. So very troubling. So one of the things that Israel has from a democracy has the ability there will be elections. Will this government make it another two and a half years? I don't know. I, I would share the skepticism on, on that. I don't remember the last time an Israeli government fulfilled its full four-year mandate. Uh, but here's an advantage. If you like the policies, vote for them. If you don't like the policies, vote them out. And, and that's one of the great things that, that Israel is similar to America in. Now, what Israel, Bahrain... Saudi, UAE, Oman, Qatar, etc. will have in common is that I think there's less of a war in between those countries over religion and there's more of a competition 
over economics and standing in the world. And once that happens, Israel is no longer the problem, but Israel is a meaningful solution. And that's part of the important pivot that's happening here. In the book, you write about your late night telephone, occasional conversations with Donald Trump. How invested was he? I mean, everybody knows, of course, about Jared Kushner's involvement in the Accords. How important were these Accords for Trump himself, in your view? So I'd love to tell you that I had late night conversations with President Trump. I didn't. Uh, my boss, Ambassador Friedman, and my boss, Jared Kushner, most certainly did. Uh, the times that I was privileged enough to be in the White House and in the Oval Office, not only was President Trump leading the charge on the Abraham Accords, but he was completely and totally conversant in both where they were at from a stage perspective and what actions needed to be taken to get them to the next stage. So the, the president was uh, deeply and meaningfully involved and supportive of this. If you, if you just remember August 13, 2020, which we're just about 10 days away from the 30 year anniversary of this, the phone call hosted in his Oval Office between Bibi Netanyahu, then the Prime Minister of Israel, and Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, essentially the leader of the United Arab Emirates, was in the midst of a heated re-election campaign and the COVID-19 pandemic pre-any vaccines. So if you look at this being a priority for the president, he deputized some of his best people to go get this done. Uh, he cared deeply about this. And what about his son-in-law, um, Jared Kushner? He recently said that he's disappointed that the accords haven't grown. He certainly attached his name to it. There was a report suggesting that he was even willing to pay personally himself for some celebration of the Accords on the White House lawn. How, how um, closely do you think historians will associate the Accords with Kushner himself? Oh, I think that, that the Accords and Kushner will be synonymous with each other. Uh, he presented a unique outlook for the Middle East. If you remember, Secretary of State John Kerry in December of 2016, he was interviewed at the, the Saban Forum, and he was asked directly by a reporter, what are the odds of there being um, normalization between Arab states and Israel prior to an Israeli-Palestinian final accord? And his answer was mimicking the Khartoum uh, three no's was no, no, no. Uh, and Jared spent three years traveling the region, listening to the leaders, seeing what they want, seeing what they needed, seeing how they envisioned the Middle East. And what he discovered, and credit to him, because it's, it's, it's hard to be the, the, uh, the cutting edge for this, he discovered there was a new Middle East that the United States of America had not yet understood or adjusted to. And, and he helped shape the Abraham Accords around the Middle East that they wanted to build, not the Middle East that had existed. You worked for the, uh, the American ambassador at the time, David Friedman, um, what what was your job? What were you doing? So the U.S. Embassy uh, and many embassies around the world get one political appointee. Very few, I think it's less than 10, get a second political appointee. And so therefore you have normally one person, the ambassador, who comes and runs a mission of a thousand plus people in the case of the U.S. and Israel, more than 2,000 people. Uh, and he brought me along to serve as his senior advisor, ultimately as a chief of staff, to be able to help uh, run the embassy. The U.S.-Israel relationship is manifold, and, uh, and Ambassador Friedman was very interested in being involved in each and every part of it. He's one person, only 24 hours in the day, seven days in the week. 
And so he deputized me to handle the issues that he wanted me to handle so he could focus on the issues that he felt were critical and turned out to be critical, Jerusalem, Golan, the deal of the century, etc. So I, I got to be his right hand. Your politics are slightly controversial. A couple of reports of your association with dark money, nonprofits, a group called um, uh, an, an Israeli uh, advocacy group, a right-wing group. Um, are you... Um, are you able or were you able to disassociate your own particular political passions and goals in terms of this Abraham Accords? Or did they all come together? Oh, look, I'm entitled to have my own personal opinions. One of the great things about the United States of America. And as long as you follow the law, you're allowed to act on those in every way that you want to and wish to as a private citizen. When I would pin on my U.S. flag onto my lapel with my jacket and tie, which I wore every single day for four years, uh, one of the very few people in Israel to do so. Uh, at that point in time, uh, I represented the United States of America. And that was U.S. policy as dictated by our president and our secretary of state and the laws that Congress passes. And uh, I'd be pleased to tell you that there were very, very few times, uh, if any, that I looked and said, mm, I'm not positive this is what Ari Leitzman wants to do. And, and if I ever had that hesitation, I looked in the mirror, saw the flag and said, it doesn't really matter what Ari Leitzman wants to do. I'm going to do what the president or secretary of state, or more specifically the case of my boss, Ambassador Friedman, wants us to do because he was the designee on behalf of the president and the secretary of state to carry out U.S.-Israel policy. So I, I was enormously rewarded to see that there is a, uh, the whole was far bigger than the sum of the parts in this case. Ari, as you know, you don't need me to tell you, you're a former rabbi. Um, the American Jewish community is very much increasingly divided on Israel, especially what's going on now. Why, in your view, were the Abraham Accords or are the Abrahamic Accords, why are they one way to get beyond some of these divisions? I mean, what was what was the response amongst liberal American Jews to the Accords? Did they poo-poo it, in, in your mind, because of its association with Trump and Kushner? Or were there some who were actually sympathetic and thinking, well, I might not like these people who have orchestrated this piece, but I'm willing to give peace a chance? Yeah, I, I think, well, a couple different things. Number one is it was gratifying to see in the midst of COVID. And if you remember 2020, I don't remember the temperature, uh, at least in terms of tempers, being that high in my existence in the United States of America. And in the midst of Republicans, Democrats, Trump, not Trump, uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, Blue Lives Matter, all, all, of, all of the contention that was literally spilling into the streets. And you see two countries and ultimately five countries, six including Israel and seven including the United States of America, who said, you know, let's not let the past dictate the future. And to me, I think it was a rallying cry to say, hey, if Mohammed bin Zayed and Bibi Netanyahu can figure out how their two countries can get together, wouldn't it make sense that Likud and Labour could unite on certain things as well? Wouldn't it make sense that Republicans and Democrats could unite on certain things as well? Wouldn't it make sense that Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox Jews would be able to unite on certain things as well? And to me, that was a elevation of the conversation, not a denigration of the conversation. The vindication of the Abraham Accords for liberal, mainstream, uh, and, and broad Jewish world is that they're here today. Um, and I think that uh, there's a broad bipartisan support for them in Congress. 
Um, and, uh, and to me, you can sort of count based upon the groups that travel to the UAE, Bahrain, and Morocco on the way to and from Israel. And from as far left to as far right, they're all making the journey and they're all saying thank you for the Abraham Accords. So people may not have liked the architects of the Accords, but my goodness, I think they're excited that peace should be, uh, forget bipartisan, it should be nonpartisan. Yeah, it's even appeared on a on an airline, uh, uh, an Etihad airline uh, napkin making history. Seems as if, in my view, at least a lot of it is rather symbolic, but that's another matter. Um, you talk, uh, Aria, about the past not, or the future not being the prisoner of the past. We can all get beyond the past in the in the Accords. Getting beyond the past, of course, means not just forgetting, but forgiving. Who is forgiving who, though, in these Abraham Accords? Is it the Israelis forgiving the Gulf states or the Gulf states forgiving Israel? And what are they forgiving or forgetting about the past? So I think that's important. Nobody has forgiven anybody for anything and nobody has forgotten anything. Uh, to the credit of the UAE and Bahrain and Morocco, they've made very, very clear that they are not pleased with the U.S. policy towards the Palestinians and that they are standing with the Palestinians. But they also made very clear that the Sorry, Palestinians... which U.S. policy, the Trump policy or the Biden no, policy or all policy? I, I, I meant the Israeli policy. If I okay. said U.S. policy, that was a slip. My that was a Freudian slip. The, uh, the Israeli policy towards the Palestinians and that they were going to work instead of from the outside, they were going to try to work from the inside. And what they said was they are not going to allow uh, the Palestinians to have a veto on their foreign policy. And, and just very basic, the UAE said for the UAE to take the next level, and I think it's a country that has enormous vision and I wish them enormous success in, in, in continuing to chase uh, bigger and better visions. Uh, part of that vision is leading with peace in the region. And, and part of peace in the region means normalizing with Israel. And so therefore, they said, look, this will advance the cause of the UAE. And at the same time, we're not going to abandon the cause of the Palestinians. We're going to have a conversation. The disappointing part of all of this, from my perspective, is the Palestinians who decided not to embrace the UAE and Bahrain and Morocco having a seat at the table, but rather tried to get the Arab League to actually condemn the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, Sudan and Kosovo for uh, for making peace with Israel. And that that to me is 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 unforgivable because it's it's that has been locked in the past and deciding that they can have a veto on any progress in the region, which ultimately is not fair to the Palestinian people. Well, this is a, a familiar narrative uh, amongst some people, as you know, area that the, the Palestinians kind of deserve their fate because they always turn down every good deal. Is that your argument too? That they no. should have accepted this? I mean, from their point of view, as from others, including perhaps myself, it all seems very symbolic and doesn't actually why, why should any palestinian in janine or east jerusalem why should they care about this well they should care about this deeply because if you are an arab born in the middle east and you're not born into royalty you have a couple of options of where you'd like to be born and this is proven out in survey after survey i think first option is dubai i think second option is abu dhabi i think third option is haifa and that's a pretty profound statement the what what we discovered when spending a lot of time with uh, Palestinian Arabs in Judea and Samaria and the West Bank was that their primary frustration was not with Israel, it was with their leadership. And I think that 
one of the major disservices that the Western world has done was to be able to say that the PA, the Palestinian Authority, is somehow a paragon of virtue and that they are the true speakers on behalf of the Palestinian people. Uh, I believe that the other signatories to the Abraham Accords realize that the Palestinian people deserve much better. Uh, They possibly deserve much better from Israel, but they certainly deserve much better from the so-called leadership of the Palestinian Authority. And and let's get ready to move past that and try to solve problems that were not being solved by the same leaders trying to do the same thing over and over again. If before you go to the next question, you've mentioned, I think, three times that you feel that the Abraham Accords are purely symbolic. Um, Very pleased to sort of engage further on that conversation. Uh, It depends really on how you feel about regulatory environments. From my perspective, it's like one of the greatest deregulations that we've ever seen. The ability for Emiratis and Israelis and Bahrainis and Moroccans, uh, ultimately Kosovars and and Sudanese as well, and and others to be able to trade and travel and visit with each other is not symbolic. Peace in between people is something that's very meaningful. I think the two greatest beneficiaries, other than the Palestinians and Israeli Arabs ultimately, will be the Jordanians and Egyptians who desperately need economic innovation and continued investment, that that can't happen in a meaningful way if peace with Israel remains cold. The fact that the Emiratis and the Bahrainis and Moroccans and others are going to join us to create warm peace, who who would possibly be against it? Are you suggesting that that Israel somehow greases the Gulf states' investment in Egypt and and Jordan? Why wouldn't the the Gulf states invest anyway, with or without Israel, with or without all the nations in Israel? They they, they absolutely are. No, there's no additional investment that's happening. There's a question of... Or or anything else. I mean, why why would you need Israel to bring these two Arab worlds or countries together? No, it's exactly the opposite of that. You need the GCC to come together with Israel for the Egyptians and Jordanians to understand the value and the merit of having a closer relationship with Israel. That out of, out of the major losses, and you can ask Egyptians and Jordanians on the street, they see these jobs and opportunities traveling immediately over them to Morocco and to UAE and to Bahrain. Israel is one of the greatest generators of technology and jobs in the entire region. One of the things that the Jordanians and Egyptians need desperately are jobs and innovation. Uh, the fact that the UAE and Bahrain and Morocco see that for the promotion of their people on a go forward basis gives the Egyptians and Jordanians a little bit of ability to say, hey, maybe we should lean in further. We were the first people uh, at, at peace with Israel. Maybe we should derive some additional benefits also, not just a benefit of not shooting at each other, but a benefit of actually living in harmony with each other. I, I don't see anything controversial about people wanting to live with each other, trade with each other, and promote each other's values and opportunities. Aria, you mentioned that you win the lottery in the Middle East, you get born in the UAE or, or, or Dubai, or one of the Gulf states, those are the best places to be born. But of course, um, citizenship in the Gulf is incredibly controversial. It's, a, to put it politely, a two-tier, these are two-tiered societies. Some people see them as almost slave states. There were lots of very bad press during the, the World Cup in Qatar. Sure. Was there an was there an element from your point of view and from an Israeli and American point of view of holding one's nose to do a deal with the Gulf states, given the intensely controversial nature of their politics and of their uh, of of who and uh, why they give citizenship to some people? 
These are not societies that, certainly from a liberal point of view, are, are, are particularly attractive. I think you painted with a very broad brush uh, in terms of the whole GCC. E each country uh, and within the UAE, even the Emirates have different laws and regulations. There's no doubt they're not robust democracies like the United States of America or like Israel. Uh, the question is, do we want to pick and choose? Are we only going to have relations with other countries that look exactly like us? And if the answer to that is yes, we've narrowed down the focus of the field that we're going to have relations with. If we're going to have relations with other countries, uh, then we should have relationships with countries that we think are moving forward. I, I would make the argument that the United Arab Emirates has done a extremely good job of trying to move their country forward in terms of human rights and opportunities and economic benefits and trying to be a place where people feel safe and have an opportunity to practice and worship freely. Uh, there, UAE, UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, I think are actually great examples of the Middle East and North Africa of what I would like other countries in those regions to look like. Are they perfect? They're absolutely not perfect. Are they far better than they were 50 years ago? They absolutely are. And I'm optimistic that they'll continue to improve. Your book offers uh, some suggestions, advice to the Biden administration on deepening, developing the, the accords. Uh, Jared Kushner recently said that he was disappointed that the accords haven't grown. You were recently on Fox um, giving some advice to Biden. Are you broadly disappointed, like uh, Jared Kushner, with Biden's seeming disinterest in the accords? Is it political? Is he busy with other stuff? I, I don't know what President Biden does all day. I'm sure that he's very busy. I think it's the single hardest job in the history of the world. And the person who has the job next, that job will be even harder. It's a complex world with lots of challenges. Uh, you should know myself and my family, we, we, we believe in, in God. We pray fairly frequently. We pray that President Biden will be the greatest president of our lifetime because that's a win for America. And when it's a win for America, it's a win for the world. So this, this is not a partisan hack comment. Um, I do think that if President Biden wants to embrace the Abraham Accords, and recently he's been giving some very positive language towards that, I wish him enormous success. From my perspective, uh, what I would do is I would immediately retract the comments on, well, let's, before we get to Saudi, and I think Saudi is, is uh, fascinating and interesting, but you want to go ahead and culminate and consummate the relationships that you're in before you figure out how to add other relationships on. The very first thing I would do uh, if I was the president of the United States of America is we've got UN week coming up fairly shortly. Uh, I would call a meeting of the leaders of the Abraham Accord states and, and host them in a very public and meaningful fashion and thank them for making peace in the region with essentially no strings attached. And if I couldn't do that, I would invite them or their emissaries, their ambassadors to the State of the Union and in the State of the Union, I would recognize them each by name and their contribution. And I think what would be amazing to see is the broad, bipartisan, lasting standing ovation for each of those countries. Most of the countries that went and leaned forward for the Abraham Accords did it less for Israel and more for greater support of the United States of America. I think it's important that the United States of America recognizes peace without uh, preconditions, and we haven't done a good enough job of that. If we do that, the other countries that Jared mentions that he's disappointed haven't signed will join. That, that, that you, you, you nailed it. The basic question is, will peace pay 
if there's a peace dividend, other countries will join. If there's no peace dividend, so why risk the uh, the challenges of joining peace with Israel? There, there are challenges, and historically, for Arab leaders, they haven't always wound so, up. So let's alive. get to the Saudis. I'm guessing, in vivid contrast with Egypt and Jordan, that the the benefits, the upside to the Saudis is not jobs; it's something else. Is it international legitimacy? What 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 what? What stops or what stopped the Saudis being involved in the first tranche of Abraham Accords? Well, I think one of the things was timing. Uh, I think that, you know, five countries in 123 days was a pretty significant accomplish to get the country six and seven. Probably needed another 30 to 60 days of runway in order to be able to get that. Secondly, a Saudi is just a much larger, more, I don't want to say more significant, that could be taken the wrong way. It's a it's a larger country that has the two of the three holy sites for Islam. And I think that uh, both the king and the crown prince uh, carry additional responsibility because of that. But my, my feeling, I'm not a Saudi expert by any stretch of the imagination, but my feeling is that with Vision 2030, what Saudi Arabia is trying to do, and I think we should cheer them on in this success, is to try to figure out how to be more modern at the same time respecting their traditions so that way the process towards modernity doesn't get toppled on the way. And that's a very delicate balance. We, we, we would love everybody to wake up tomorrow morning and look like the United States of America. A, it's not going to happen. B, many of these places around the world will never look like the United States of America. So I, it, yeah, yeah. It's, well, it's fine to say that, but you, know, you can point to other countries, Singapore, Vietnam, uh, certainly Korea, which <clears throat> have gone from one kind of... See, aren't you troubled with... Saudi record on human rights. Uh, Jared clearly isn't. I mean, he was very close to MBS, or probably still is very close to MBS. Is 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 Saudi one bridge too far in terms of human rights? Doing a deal with Israel, in your view, for the Americans and perhaps for the Israelis? No, I think I think that's a a, a, mis- a mistake and a poor read on the on the region. I think that you can go ahead. America has no issue, none whatsoever, with being able to embrace Israel on one side. And then to be able to give Israel a very, very hard time on, on some issues on the other side. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can acknowledge that Saudi is an energy powerhouse, is an important country in the region for stability and for um, greater modernity, peace and prosperity on one hand. And on the other hand, to be able to say, I'm not pleased with human rights A, B, and C that are happening over here. I, I will tell you as an American... Uh, who represented the United States of America and Israel, they listened much more closely when we had a conversation with them at the table than when we did when we shouted at them from across the room. And I think that we would benefit greatly from sitting closely at the table. President Biden went to Saudi Arabia last year, and the whole question was, will he handshake or fist bump uh, with uh, the Crown Prince MBS? And my response is, we should be bear-hugging him. Is he perfect? He's not perfect. But is he somebody that we want him to be able to continue in a meaningful way towards modernization? Absolutely, we do. And I think we should be rooting on his success to be able to get there. I'm and guessing, part of that, uh, part of that is guess- peace in the Middle East. I'm guessing, Aria, that if, if the next election is between Trump and Biden, you're certainly sympathetic, open, if not sympathetic to Trump. If, if that is the election and they debate and they talk about the Abraham Accords, will Trump have a case to make suggesting to Biden that I made Donald Trump, I made these 
these deals. I started Middle Eastern peace and you've done absolutely nothing. Is that a, is that the kind of argument that Trump might make if in the presidential debates, the issue of the Middle East and the peace comes up? Well, I, I think the answer is based upon facts on the ground, August 4th, 2023. Yes. That, uh, that president Trump can say that he set peace in motion in the Middle East and you, President Biden, did not pick up the baton and you did not run with it. And you did not run with it because it was something that Trump did. Uh, had President Biden said Iran was bad and your approach to Iran was correct, Abraham Accords is good and your approach to Abraham Accords is good and everything else that you've done in the history of humanity is wrong, but I'm going to run with these two things, you would have seen many other countries join and likely you would have seen Iran at the negotiating table, not with the upper hand, but actually looking to figure out how they can become part of the Abraham Accords as well. Because I think the Iranian people also deserve far better than the leaders are giving them. Unfortunately, we keep funding the leaders at the enormous detriment of the people. That's what the president would say if the debate was today. I am optimistic because I believe in America and I, I, I hope that this president will back up some of his words with action, I think there may be more countries that will join in between now and there being a general election debate in between uh, Trump and Biden. Yeah, I'd be curious to the the Gulf states, the ones that are already in the Accords and the Saudis, whether or not they'd want Iran part of the Accords. But that's a, a probably a subject for another book, certainly another show. Finally, uh, and it, it would be a different. It would be a different Iran. It certainly would not be. The yeah, same so no uh, doubt. you play with the Iran you have, for better or worse, <laughs> as you've suggested. A um, couple of reports I saw, which are slightly contradictory. One that, um, uh, according to the Middle Eastern Eye, which uh, from uh, from the end of July, from last month, a week ago. Uh, the support for normalization deals with Israel is plummeting in Gulf states. And on the other hand, a report from Reuters that even after the Janine attack, uh, the Arab states are sticking with Israel. Are those compatible? Is it true, as the Middle East and I suggest, that you mentioned the Arab street, this metaphor for popular opinion? Are people losing faith with this? Did they ever have any faith with the Abraham Accords? So they absolutely had faith, and I think that they will have faith. Are we in a lull right now with how this is polling from a popularity perspective? Absolutely we are. Look at the media reports on Israel for the last, uh, I don't know, nine months uh, reporting on protests and, and how the United States of America speaks to these protests. And when the United States of America, including our president, starts getting involved with Israeli domestic issues and claiming things like uh, dictatorship and, and various different words that I think are factually inaccurate, but I think even worse, it's it's the U.S. getting involved in domestic issues uh, of a, of a, of an ally that were resolved through a democratically elected circumstance. Uh, the Arab street, like any other street, the Arab people are certainly subject to what the news is that hits them. Time uh, are time you again. saying that Biden's crit crit criticism of of the judicial controversy in Israel is? turning the Arab street off the Abraham Accords. I don't see how that I, I, I understand your critique of Biden, but I don't see the connection. Oh, absolutely. The the that's a misunder. It's, it's a misplaced understanding of the value that the United States of America brings to the Abraham Accords. The, the United States of America, when it embraces Israel, when, when we moved our embassy to Jerusalem, uh, led by Ambassador Friedman, obviously, and Jared Kushner uh, and President Trump, who ultimately made that decision, that didn't make peace further away. It made peace closer. 
when the United States of America stands unapologetically with Israel, then other countries want to stand close to the United States of America. This is America is the undisputed superpower in the world and countries want to get closer to us. When we push our ally away, it makes that ally far less attractive. Yeah, I, I mean, I, Aria, finally, I mean, it's, this is so controversial. I mean, one could argue, in fact, I think I would argue, there are two Israels now. There's the Israel that you seem sympathetic with, and then there's an Israel that others, including myself, are sympathetic with. Should we even be talking about Israel as one country? Absolutely, we should be. Is America one country? Are there not two different streams of thought currently going on in America? It's a very simplistic view of a robust democracy that if you look just today, today, August 4th, I woke up this morning on Twitter to a rap video in between two cultural, not icons, but up and coming uh, performers in Israel who see opposite of each other, came up with a rap video and said, let's stop looking at each other as enemies and let's start looking at each other as opponents. Does Israel need a constitution? They do. Will this be a drive to be able to get there? I hope it will. And which if country, not, finally, finally, Ari, which country uh, is closer to civil war, the United States or Israel? Neither. Neither. People can root this on all that they want. The United States of America is a spectacular country with very strong institutions who Americans love each other. Whether our politicians can get along with each other, who cares? Whether radio talk show hosts want to yell at each other, who cares? Americans love each other, as do Israelis. And we can spend all the time on podcasts and radio shows and TV shows trying to make each other our enemies. We're not our enemies. When Israelis will be attacked by enemies, they will stand shoulder to shoulder and nobody will give a damn where they stood on the judicial reform issue. And if America, God forbid, has to suit up and has to take care of itself again, they will not care whether you were Trump or you were Biden, you were Obama or whoever is next. Americans are so much stronger than that. Give them credit. And what about the the reservists who were refusing to... Sign so, up in Israel. Uh, uh, again, I think if you dig a little bit closer into that, headlines are not always accurate. Most of the people, and again, looking for names ascribed to this, but most of the people who said that they're not going to do it were reservists who weren't serving anymore anyways. Look at the people who signed stuff and then figure out who they are and then diagnose what it is. This enormous media campaign to turn people into enemies instead of opponents is reprehensible. And I don't know how those people sleep at night. I really don't.